Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters, the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical worldview. I'm Bruce Johnson, of course, joined by my brother Jacob Johnson. Hello everybody. And today is Literature Wednesday. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today. Just like last week, this is the sound of 400 and some odd pages smacking you in the face and I feel like they really slapped me in the head this week. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to try our best to take this extremely dense work and boil it down into a brief half-hour episode. And to be honest, what we're it's covering... In, in, <laughs> we are covering, what, two hours worth of audiobooks, two-plus hours, really, worth of audiobooks have... Uh, in a half hour or less, actually. So play, please bear with us. We are trying our best to condense this and make it interesting because there's actually so much here that's really fascinating to study. And Jake, I'm sure we're going to talk about this as we go, but one of the things that really, really stands out to me and is beginning to really become overt is that Wolf has aligned himself very, very closely to the reformers of old, right? Or at least he quotes them very heavily. Um, and so we're going to be talking about some of the implications of that. Jake has some context from his Sunday school class, actually. For those of you who don't know Jake, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, but Jake is half Anglican now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, yeah. That's a complicated situation. It, it is, so. it is. Um, but I can still say it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to an Anglican church, if that's what yes. you mean. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyways, they talk about some very interesting things in his um, uh, Bible study, uh, Bible study, Sunday school, there it is, uh, class, church history, all that kind of stuff. And so actually some of that we've been discussing and he brought it up and it's played really well into our conversation. So anyways, Jake has a lot more context than I do on a lot of this stuff, which is really cool. So anyways, we're uh, reading uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolf. We've gotten through this week we're talking about chapters two and three so we've gotten through the introduction we've gotten through chapter one and because these are so dense we split it up so jake read chapter three and i read chapter two and hopefully we give them both fair coverage um yes we have opinions hopefully it doesn't uh, bleed into the text too hard but as we're going to talk about today um it's kind of hard to leave your opinions out of it well, because i think this keep- is yeah, it, this is more of our our opinion of the book, really. This is our, yes. you know, yes. us giving you what we think of the book we, through evidence, through like yes. you know, actually giving you Quotes. evidence. And we yeah. want to be fair, you know, like we want to give it a of fair course. read and portray and uh, discuss what it's actually talking about fairly. Um, but at the same time, it is kind of hard because it's so dense. There's so many different ways you can take everything in it. So <laughs> it's tricky. So Especially we're gonna walk that book. line. Yeah, especially this book. So, sorry, is that what you said? Especially this book? Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, so, we're going to walk that fine line, and uh, hopefully we come out on the other side without making too many people mad. Uh, so, here we go. That's impossible. That's I know. hard. I know how crazy I just sounded just there. <laughs> so, <laughs> before we get into all that, we have to do what we always do, which is talk about our verse of the week. Wednesday, of course, means Jake does that. So, dude, take it away. And our verse this week is Isaiah 57, verse 19 through 21. So three verses this week. Um, and it says, 
I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to you that is far off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the th- like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Uh, yeah. Whose water whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And again, that was Isaiah 57, verses 19 through 21. And I wanted to give a brief summary of what Bruce mentioned, or what, what we put out on our post, and what Bruce mentioned on Monday. So what we put out on our, Insta- um, on our Instagram post, I saw it on Instagram, but our social media post, uh, giving the verse of the week, and we Bruce puts out a, a brief, uh, brief little thing blurb in there. Speak talking summary. about the verse, yeah, summary. And and then I also want to cover a little bit of what Bruce talked about on Monday. I, I want to keep this very brief, very short because I know we have a lot to talk about, and we are scared that we don't have enough time. So <laughs> we definitely um, <laughs> what Bruce was covering on Monday. And I think this is very, very interesting to pull from this verse is this last little bit, this last little section, not the very last sentence, but the one before that, where it says, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt and pointing out the fact that the that the wicked, all they can do is cast up mire and dirt. They can only destroy when God creates, the the wicked can only disfigure and destroy. Look at what they do to men and women. They disfigure and destroy. Look what they do to marriage. They disfigure and destroy it. Um, look at what they do to life. They destroy it through abortion. Yeah. Um, and then also pointing out what Bruce was talking about in our social media post talking about there is a distinct truth and evil. There's a distinct good and bad. And this verse brings that up, talking about the, talking about, um, uh, sorry, talking about this peace, peace to him that is far off and him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. And then it contrasts, but the wicked, talking about there's, there's a contrast between the good and the evil. So, briefly bring those up and hopefully that wasn't didn't take up too much time yes, so indeed. we shall get into this book now yeah that was great thank you jacob so um i want to start delving into chapter two here and i pulled out two things that stood out to me two topics and what was fascinating is that these are the two topics that i a debate most frequently it feels it seems with uh, <laughs> fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, but also um, things that I believe very strongly in um, having studied these two topics. And so it was just funny to me uh, that they were both in this chapter. And I happen to disagree with his stance on both of them in some of the ways that he stated it. Right. So oh, one thing I want to talk about is at least on one of them, he goes back and forth, which is interesting. So we're going to chat about that and how it might seem he goes back and forth. Maybe he's not actually, it's all smidge bit confusing, but we'll, we'll get into it. Don't worry. So, um, first is decreasing the effects of the fall from what I could tell reading through this very dense material. He seemed to decrease 
a lot of what we would call the effects of the fall. And so, you know, as reformed Christians, we don't trust ourselves to make decisions rightly. This should be something that is obvious. I mean, the heart is deceitful above all else. Um, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We, you know, all of these things, if we're Calvinists, if we're reformed, if we <clears throat> believe in total depravity, then we don't trust ourselves to have inbuilt knowledge that is not corrupted. Um, we believe in total depravity, right? We don't think we can make wise decisions without the word of God to guide us. But Wolf seems, from my perspective, from what I've read, and you can disagree with us in the comments or disagree with me. I won't attach Jake to this, <laughs> to my opinion, my <laughs> perspective. Um, but it seems to me that he took, takes a different side. And he tries to make the case that there is still inherent, inerrant built knowledge built into us that has not been fully affected by the fall, which is interesting. And he brings up page 82. He says, no reformed theologian claimed that, that the fall of man separated man entirely from knowledge of the natural law and the ability to perform it. Nor did man lose the faculty of reason or even civil virtue. End quote. So his take here to me, seems to undermine, not just here, but in the following quotes I'm about to add, seems to undermine the, just the deepness of the corruption of the, of the curse, of the fall of man, right? Here he says that, you know, uh, that the fall of man separated man entirely from knowledge of the natural law. I think you could make a case for obviously there are still things were made in the image of God. So we didn't become other creatures that aren't made in the image of God anymore. So sure, there are some things there. But the fact that he harps on this for so long without balancing it out, to me, is a little like, eh. to me. I would say, sure, we have built things built into us, right? But that inbuilt knowledge, we shouldn't rely on. <laughs> I don't believe we should rely on anything but the word of God. So honestly, we might have inbuilt knowledge. But I believe, as Christians, we should, we should pretend like we don't, <laughs> right? We should act as if the only thing we can trust, because I believe this is true, the only thing we can actually trust is the word of God. Not ourselves, not this mystical inbuilt knowledge, not this, you know, man separated from the knowledge of natural law and all this stuff. I think it could be a lot simpler than he makes it out to be. And I think we can say, no, sure, that might be there, but let's pretend like it's not and just trust the word of God, right? Um, I'll continue, though, pages 84 and um, 83 and 84. Quote, since the fall did not eliminate the natural gifts, it follows that man did not lose the knowledge of the principles and the faculties that most concerned his outward earthly life. Reformed writers, for this reason, have used remarkably positive language when describing man's capabilities and actions with regard to civil virtue. Uh, Althusius wrote, for example, that, quote, in political life, even an infidel may be called just, innocent, and upright. Calvin states that, all men have impressions of civil order and honesty. They comprehend the principles of civil law and have universal agreement in regard to such subjects, both among nations and individuals, and their ideas of equity agree in substance. The consent of all nations on principles of equity and justice is the voice of nature, end quote. 
except it isn't. <laughs> there, there isn't this agreement that he's implying here or that he's not just insinuating. He's, he's flat out saying there's, there's this overarching agreement between sometimes there is, but I think instead of attributing that to some sort of natural law or something that's like, ah, just a mystical knowledge. Yes. We believe we are created in the image of God. So there is morality that people who who are built on the foundations of a Christian culture, just it's built in, right? Most common cultures. Yeah. Sorry. In a sense, a common, a common sense. Right. Yeah. Common sense. Most cultures say murder's wrong, for instance, or stealing is wrong and they differ on the details, but largely they, so I I think that that might be what he's trying to get at here, but to say that, um, we have remarkably, um, that reformers have used remarkable, remarkably <laughs> words, uh, remarkably positive language when describing man's capabilities and actions with regard to civil virtue. And then to go in and say, you know, even an infidel may be called just, innocent, upright. But we can't, though. Like, infidels can't be called that apart from Christ. And so I think that there's a diminishing of the fallen. There, there's actually an exalting of the fallen nature of man and saying that we aren't as uh, eroded or corrupted to the core as it seems. Anyways, so that was there. There's a few more quotes. Um, page 99, if you have the book, read through that. Um, just because I know there's so many pages in here. If you're going to read through and you want more context on this, pages 83 and 84, um, page 82, and then page 99, I would recommend checking out. And then maybe some context around those. Okay, I don't have any more time to talk about that. So let me move into my final thing and I'll pass it to Jake. Okay. Refining, uh, redefining the gospel and the reaches slash aim of the reign of Christ. This one, this one got me a little, uh, a little little skeptical. (laughs) Page 104. He said, quote, religion should be mainly about the gospel. Okay. With you so far. And then he says, that is about the means to eternal life. And so corporate worship ought primarily, though not exclusively, to address souls and administer sacred things for heavenly life. Thus, pastors should not, in their official capacities at least, be social activists or political coordinators, especially from the pulpit, end quote. So I get where he's going, because I've debated people like this, (laughs) right? I get where he's coming from. But what I think, what's not clear In this quote, there's other quotes that I'm going to get to in a second that are actually pretty good. But in this quote, what's not clear is that the question should be asked, does the Bible talk about politics? Okay, let's step back even further. Does the Bible apply to all areas of life? Heck yes. Is there anything that's not uh, that the Bible doesn't relate to? Nope. Nope. I, I don't believe. I don't believe so. The, uh, what does Timothy say? What does Paul say in, in Timothy, the book of Timothy? All of scripture is God, re- God breathed and profitable for teaching, reproach, learning and righteousness, all of these things in all of life, right? And so if that's in the Bible, if politics is in the Bible, if, if culture building is in the Bible, why would we say the preacher can preach on everything else except that, Right? 
So no, he's not a cultural, he's not a, an activist or whatever. That, that term changes every decade or so, <laughs> right? So he's not like, you know, a social activist. Everyone here should vote for Trump. He can give reasons why maybe that's an unwise decision. You should know this is what it looks like to be a good political leader. And this is what it looks like to be a bad one. And based on that, you can look at Trump's actions and you can say, yeah, he's not, he's not great, right? So anyways, there's, there's that. Finally, um, there's this whole separation, right? That he, he tries to set up this idea of two kingdoms. And Jake, I think we can get into this a little bit, although we don't really have that much time. Um, I was going to say, if people want to ask about this and know more about it, ask us in the comment section and we can reply. And I can, if you yeah. want, I can give what I would have done here on the show yes being that we don't have enough time yep yeah that would be great so page 107 he quotes calvin and he says as calvin said the spiritual kingdom of christ and civil government are things very widely separated the civil government is distinct from the spiritual and internal kingdom of christ which begins the heavenly kingdom in us the two are widely separated in the sense that the spiritual leveling and unifying consequences of the gospel have their own place and are kept from mixing up nature and thereby subverting the natural order. The state of glory, in other words, has begun in the hearts of believers, but believers still must outwardly act in accordance with the principles of this world. So obviously I disagree heartily, very strongly with that whole statement. Um, you know, we, we <laughs> should not outwardly act in accordance with the principles of this world. Now, if by this world, he means like the natural law, I would say, well, we don't have to care about that because we have an inspired law book, <laughs> right? Like we don't need to worry about like, Oh, what does natural law say? Like what's natural? Well, how do we know? Like, Oh, I feel like this is what natural law says as opposed to no, no, no. The, the Bible says this. I just feel like this whole thing could be avoided if we just say, what does the Bible say? The Bible says civil government is twofold. It is the justice division of society, and it has very limited roles of defense. That's it. It is not a social activist civil government. It doesn't build roads. It doesn't educate children. It doesn't do any of that, right? We know that from Scripture. It's very clear. And so yeah. and it, and it, we, it speaks... It speaks about that in both the Old and New Testament. So yeah, it's not even over the place, that, that is right? for Israel. That is for us yeah, as yeah. well. Plainly obvious. And so I think this whole, that whole mess of, well, there's two kingdoms and they don't mix. And if you try to mix them together, then you're going to upset nature and you're going to get issues and, and all this kind of stuff. All of that can be avoided. If we just say, what does the Bible say about every area of life? Let's apply that. So. All right. So I think, I think that to me, those are some of the things that stood out. There's, I have so many highlights in this chapter, <laughs> so many quotes, um, but uh, we don't have time. So go back, check out this chapter. Let us know what you think. Um, those are some of my highlights. All right, Jake got uh, about 15 minutes, a little less than 15 minutes. What do you got, dude? Chapter it looks three. Like five. What? I think I got five minutes. No, no sorry. No. 10 minutes. No, a little more than 10 minutes. You got like 15 or so. Yeah. Go for 15. <laughs> All right. So I'll start out with a quote, and then, I'll, and then I'll explain. And this is kind of my process of this entire thing. I start out with a quote, and then I try to explain the quote. And kind of what Bruce was doing. Um, but 
the quote I would like to bring up and speak about is on page uh, 122, uh, where Wolf says, take the street, for example. When our, when our children are very young and newly mobile, we can com- command them not to enter or even get near the street. In simple, fa- in simple fact, we are distinguishing places for them. The street, as opposed to saying the driveway, is a no-go space. This no-go rule is not inherent to the space we call street, or uh, sorry, street itself, or even the material used to make it. Street designates a certain human activity or meaning for the space. One space, sorry, meaning for that space one that comes with particular rules for both drivers and pedestrians. Uh, And I would continue, but I'll I'll end there, and I think that is enough to explain this whole thing. Now, it seems, coming off of that last chapter Bruce brought up, this seems a little disjointed or has no real reason for him to bring this up. However, this chapter is on love of nation. I do. I think that's the chapter title. I forget exactly what the chapter title is, but I think it's "Love of Nation" or, yeah, or something loving your nation, along those lines. The nation and nationalism. Okay. Yep. Yes. So, and what Wolf is discussing in this quote is is the subject slash object relation that throughout society, society, uh, physical spaces are connected to emotional or subjective thoughts. So the street for the child is connected with danger or caution because that's what the parents instill in that child. I think through this, through this thought, uh, though this thought seems disjointed from what the book is discussing, it, it does play a key role to Wolf's later claims. So it will make more sense as I continue. Uh, next, next quote is on page 125. Uh, where Wolf says, to understand the relationship of memory, sentiment, and place, let us return to house and home. The house of one's youth is not merely another house among houses. It is your childhood home. End quote. And he's bringing up the distinction here between us calling something a house and us calling something a home. When something is a house, it is a structure in which people live in. A home is a place where you live, where you create memories. Uh, Wolf also mentions how homes have connected with them good or bad memories, such as sitting on a porch with family, watching stars, or that home may have other warm emotions or feelings. Um, However, related to the home, there could also be negative thoughts. But Wolf's point is that no matter the thought or memory, there is going to be a subjective memory connected to that home. That home is going to be different from houses. Uh, Again, this is a very vital, important thing to understand in that distinction of, and, and taking both that last quote and this quote together to understand that, okay, let's Let's go through a summary real quick, because I think the, ne- the this next one really brings starts fleshing some things out. Um, the the first quote I mentioned, we're talking about spaces, we're talking about a space having a different meaning. That this 
this street can have a bigger subjective memory or bigger subjective um, thought to it. The street to a child means caution because there could be cars coming. There could be something happening and the child has to be cautious of going out into the street or running out into the street. Connected with this next quote, he's talking about there can be affections and there can be a lovingness to a home. There can be a lovingness to a certain place. Moving on to the next quote uh, to, uh, on page 132, uh, Wolf uh, states, Entering a friend's house reveals the stark difference between types of familiarity. Though you might be familiar with his house and with houses generally, his home does not have the higher order familiarity of your home. Uh, again, that was page 132. And with this, what he's saying is that your home has a different meaning than his home. His home does not have connected with it those same emotions or uh, subjective thoughts that your home does. When you go back to your house, you have a different feeling of, of feeling safe than his home would. Uh, moving forward, Wolf explains the familiarity with greater things than, <clears throat> than just a home. So, moves from this concept of home and starts explaining bigger things like familiarity with country or familiarity with town. And Wolf also explains, if you were to go to another country or and that town that you find yourself in is unfamiliar... If you are in Italy, Spain, somewhere else, somewhere exotic, different, that place that you're in is unfamiliar. It doesn't have any worth to you aside from being a vacation spot. It doesn't have any emotional ties to who you are. Um, to this, you are not invested in that town and you have a no affection for it. Um... Going on, moving on to page 136, Wolf states, There is a mutual tr trust, not based in some procedural social contract, but in a shared sense of we, centered around particularities that elevate the people in, as Edmund Burke said, a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are, those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. Um, I thought I would bring this up, uh, and I felt like this was needed to be covered. Uh, most of page 136 needs to be covered, but uh, because of how hostile people have gotten towards uh, this ideal, uh, a lot of people say that Wolf believes in kinism and anti-Semitism anti and all that type of stuff. However, I, I kind of want to slightly dispel a lot of this and, and show you what Wolf actually says and explain it. Um, the first off, um, <clears throat> having a connection to the dead and those who are yet to be is a concept Wolf explained earlier in the book, which you, sh you should read from for yourself because I do not bring up uh, that specific point, but that a, a culture or a nation has a connection with its past and with its future. 
and that other nations don't understand that connection because they're not that nation. Nations are different because of those connections that you have to past and future. Um, and every nation has a history and every nation has things which it passes to the future, passes to, yeah, passes down. For example, memorials. As someone who comes to a memorial in the future can understand what that nation went through because of whatever memorial it might be to a firefighter, to to the Civil War, to to the to the uh, Revolutionary War. You know that memorial has meaning to those people because they live there. They understand it. Wolf yeah. is explaining that nations have a connection with themselves better. Than they, than they could ever have with other nations. And that is not to say they're, uh, not to say that we then hate other nations, but to state that having such a connection is what makes a nation strong. A, a nation will be stronger because of its familiarity with itself. Um, Again, on page 136, and this is my very final quote, and I will end with this one. Um, Nevertheless, a foreign place is a strange and exotic. It is not home. Such places are enjoyable only because you can leave them and return to what is familiar. Even when you're in a foreign land, the familiar remains operative as the background condition for the experience of foreignness. This is why your thrill of foreignness would quickly change to anxiety or, or worse if you were suddenly forced to stay past your expectation. You can enjoy foreignness because you have a plan to leave it in return to what is familiar. I, I thought this was very, very interesting, uh, him bringing this up. And the fact that the only reason you can love going to a place like France or Italy is because you know you can return home. If you yeah. then were forced to stay in a prison there or stay there for, for whatever reason, and not just prison, but, you know, for whatever reason. Went to a dark place. There, yeah. <laughs> there could be a very bad reaction to that. You you would then hate being there. That would leave a bad taste in your mouth. So I know this is on the same page. It's still on page 136. Um and, you know, there's a lot more to discuss later in the book. Believe me, this, this, what I just discussed is probably half of this yeah. chapter. You yeah, need to I'm go sure. back and read the entire thing. However, yeah. I bring this up because of how polarizing this concept has become. Yep. I wanted to point out mm. that Wolf strictly states that in order to love the foreign, you have to first love the familiar. People enjoy going to other countries because they know they can return home. I wanted to also bring up something that very interesting. A lot of people also attack the fact of, well, well, God says us to, to love everyone. Um, and Wolf says that if you were, and, and he states that love is different depending on the things. If you were to love all women as if they were your wife, they would be an issue. <laughs> yeah. So you love things that are closer to you or more relational to you than the things that are further away. And that yep. 
is biblical. That is ingrained in a sense, this sort of natural law, as Bruce was stating, this is kind of a thing that got that God put into us in in the dawn of creation in a sense. And I don't think yeah. it's too much of a stretch to claim that that is biblical. That feeling is biblical. That is very, very biblical. So uh, I think with that, I will end. So hopefully that is a good uh, summary of this whole issue of kinism and that a lot of people like to claim about Wolf. And hopefully that gives you a good explanation as to what he says and how really he doesn't believe in that. He did also mention um, in this chapter interracial marriage. It wasn't bad. Let me say, it's not what everybody claims. He literally Mm. talks against that. Talks against people saying interracial marriage is bad. Wow. He says it's, it's, it's a sign of love to another person that in that that's yeah. But you can read that for yourself. Please do. Nice. Sweet. Well, lest you think we are beaten up on Wolf, although Jake did a pretty good job defending him in that last chapter, I want to wrap up with a quote that I actually really liked and I agree with wholeheartedly. Um, And it's uh, I'm going to take a hodgepodge from 114 and 115 and kind of put them together. It's part of a Calvin quote and then his uh, commentary. So Calvin said, God has appointed to his children alone the whole world and all that is in the world. For this reason, they are also called the heirs of the world. For at the beginning, Adam was appointed to be Lord of all. And then finally, his commentary, Wolf's commentary, is, uh, oh, actually, no, sorry, he continues Calvin's quote, says, Christ, by whom we are admitted into this family at the same time, admits us into a participation of this right, so that we may enjoy the whole world together with the favor of God. And then Wolf says, we can enjoy the things of this world with a true and good conscience, for they are truly ours in Christ. A little later down, we can stand over the world as the true heirs of the world, even this world. For as Bobbing states, uh, substantially nothing is lost in the final reformation of all things. This world is not eradicated in substance, but made more excellent. End quote. So, of course, we can agree that things are progressively getting better. Right? We can agree that we are working in this world uh, and that creation until now was groaning, but is now being renewed and restored and being brought into a more Christ-like way. And things are being brought from one degree of glory to another. So it's nice to see some of that language reflected there. All right. Thank you all so, so much for watching or listening. Catch us on Friday when we kick off a brand new series. You don't want to miss this the poisoned heart of America. And we're going to be assessing America's injuries on Friday. So you don't want to miss that. Thanks again. Check out our show website, trdshow.net. Send us all your emails, trdshow at protonmail.com. And we'll see you on Friday. And remember, everyone, in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord. 